Welcome listeners to the next edition of the Editor's Desk. I'm Rusty Reno here at First Things, sitting, in fact, at the Editor's Desk. And I have with me Jade Henricks, President of Catholic Laity and Clergy for Renewal. He served for many years the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops as Executive Director of Government Relations. And he has written for many publications, including First Things. And we're going to talk about two pieces that he's written over the last couple of years about Pope Francis and the American Church. One, Francis does not understand the American Church from June of 2022. And why does the Pope dislike me from August of 2023? Welcome to the podcast, Jay. Thank you, Rusty. Really appreciate it, and I'm grateful for the work that First Things does. Oh, uh, so well said, well said. (laughs) And you know, there are people who listen to this podcast who, and I'm really kind of shocking to even think about it, who do not subscribe to First Things magazine. It is, it's kind of hard to imagine, but it is true. And so if you, dear listener, are not a subscriber, you need to run, don't walk, to the nearest subscription stand, or if it's more convenient, firstthings.com. Great. Okay, so... Pope Francis does not understand the American church. What, what is, in your, in your observation, what is his biggest misconception? I wrote this piece, uh, Pope Does Not Understand the Church of the United States, in response to comments that he made, and this has been a series of comments that he's made over the years, where he just disparages the American church, says it's, as he calls it, backwards-looking, or not inspired by the Holy Spirit. There's a variety of things that over time, I just felt there's a need to respond to this. And I, it's frustrating because, you know, it seems to me as I look around and, and if you travel to Europe or, or, or um, other places, that the United States is actually doing pretty well relative to other places. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> it's not perfect. We can do more. But it's doing okay. And yet he seems to want to characterize it as, one, uh, he, he has said a couple times that, Many in the United States reject Vatican II, which is not true. He also characterizes uh, bishops and priests as somehow not fully embracing Vatican II and in some respects kind of implicitly opposing him, mm-hmm. which also I don't think is true. Uh, and and he, the, the, the dynamism, which, which he's been so good about saying, you know, the church needs to go out to the margins and, and needs to, to be more proactive. I think we've got a lot of that here in the United States. And yet he wants to characterize it as something different. And so I just felt the need to respond to that. Others have, have done so as, as well. But I just think it's an unfair characterization. And I don't know if it's because of ignorance or because of some blind spots. I don't know. Um, but, but I think it's unfair to the church. It is the case that the American church is rough and tumble, especially in its social media manifestation. That's fair, isn't it, to say? Yeah, I think that's fair. But I think that voice is amplified. I, my impression is, and I don't follow these things all that closely in terms of the, the, the margins, but I do think they're on the margins. You have the Michael Boris's and, and, and others who are out there, and, and they're very loud, no doubt, um, mm-hmm. Taylor Marshall. But I think they've been given a, a, a larger platform because the Pope and others are saying that they have this large voice, <laughs> when in fact, they really don't. But, but they're getting a larger voice because critics of them are being more vocal in their opposition to them when, when I, I just think, as I said in my piece, if we just let them kind of be out there in, in a corner of the internet, they'll stay, stay self-contained, 
Uh, but now they're getting a, a larger voice. But yes, they're, they're loud, but I do think they're, they're small. And you point out that, uh, yes, of course, there are these marginal figures, the sort of tratty side of things that uh, have a loud voice. But you point out that there's certainly kind of progressive Catholics who can be quite extreme and, and also have a loud voice, Just often amplified by mainstream media. And also amplified by bishops and, and prelates who, who, will, who will give them a platform. I mean, it, it, it is an equal opportunity here in terms of the margins. They're, they're, I think they're both relatively small, but they're both loud. But the, the faithful Catholics, the ones in the pews, for the most part, are not in either of those camps. And, and to characterize the American church more generally as, as belonging to a camp, I think, is, is unfair. You point out that if you travel around the United States, and I do for, you know, to go to various um, meetings and give talks, and I go to, you know, I look on masstimes.org and wind up <laughs> stumbling into some parish just because it happens to have an 11 o'clock mass, and, I'm, and it, it works with my schedule for that day. And, uh, and I do, I agree with you. Uh, you know, still a lot of guitars out there. Um, uh, it's Novus Ordo, it's pretty much the same mass everywhere. Uh, I would say there's more biblical preaching actually now than there was 20 years ago. And that's Vatican too. I know, you that's point Vatican that out. Too. Yes, yes. And I, I see that as a positive, um, uh, very positive development. But if anything, I'm a kind of formality and worship guy. Maybe it's my Anglican past manifesting itself. If anything, I would like to see things <laughs> a bit more, um, a bit more uh, elevated in this fashion that recommended by Benedict XVI. But yeah, it is it is bizarre to think that you could look at the American Church and think that it was captive to a kind of what is the term he used in the Portugal uh, interview? Uh, Indarismo. That's right. Yeah. Which is what looking That's back, a backward lookingness. Backward, yeah. Yeah, I don't see that at all. I unless, don't unless you def, unless you think uh, uh, saying the Sanctus in Latin <laughs> is uh, backward looking. Um, the irony is is that in those more traditional churches, which are hard to find, that celebrate the Novus Ordo in a more traditional way, that's actually probably more consistent with what the council yes. was shooting for. And and so you know, what most of us experience when we book mass times and go to a, a random parish is probably something that's not exactly what. The, the council fathers had in mind even and yet now that is part of as we we often hear the spirit of Vatican II mm. and so that should be the template mm. it is the template in, in vast majority of parishes but I'm not sure it's actually the model that Vatican II is actually even aiming for I love the line in, and this is from uh, Pope Francis does not understand the American church I love this line to erect Karl Rahner as the sole and definitive voice of the post-Vatican II Church is as stultifying as the most arrogant forms of preconciliar scholasticism. Well said. <laughs> and in a way, the 70s did erect Karl Rahner as the sole and definitive voice of Vatican II, at least in, in Catholic um, academic circles. Yeah, and, and that's the other thing that I think I, I mentioned here is, is we're losing the appreciation for what I call the pluriformity of the faith. Mm. Okay, so so Rahner is an interpretation. I don't think it's the authoritative, he's the authoritative interpretation. I think we have John Paul II and Benedict who are more authoritative in terms mm -hmm. of their interpretation of Vatican II. 
But, okay, let's allow, as I think Vatican II, in some respects, was, was opening the door for a little bit more diversity. And so, and yet, now we have, with this pontificate, there seems to be a restricting of, of a certain aesthetic, uh, a certain approach to, to the faith, which, which, which is <laughs> yes. the exact... Paradoxical. Paradoxical. Yes, yeah. one of my friends, David Diego, years ago, he, he, he sent me a note that he was in Seattle and he saw a church with a sign up front, we include everyone who includes everyone. <laughs> And as David pointed out, that turns out to be hardly anyone. <laughs> so there's a kind of uh, paradoxical uh, narrowness in the agenda of inclusion. Well, what about the Vatican? And here I'm thinking of the uh, um, the Spadaro, uh, mm. and who was the evangelical? His name I can't remember. I the can't remember. Kind. Anyway, it was a letter or an article uh, that came out, and Spadaro's the uh, editor of a very prominent newspaper in the Vatican. It was called Evangelical Fundamentalism and Catholic Integralism. And I remember reading that thinking, wow, you know, influential people in the Vatican seem to think that the American Catholic Church is captive to a particularly extreme version of political conservatism. Mm. And, uh, oof, that, that, if anything... <laughs> <laughs> I think, you know, the actual, we know that Catholics as a block are not reliable voters for either party. Mm -hmm. We we kind of split our vote for those who are self-identified Catholic Catholics. And I remember looking at data from, I think it was 2012, um, how people voted for in the election that was Obama-Romney, how they voted according to mass attendance. Mm. And... Uh, Daily mass goers were more likely to vote for Obama than Romney. Oh, really? Weekly mass goers were more likely to vote for Romney than um, than Obama. And I kind of chalked it up as a person who often goes to daily mass, a lot of old people. Mm. And there's that famous line about a Chicago Catholic is born Democrat, baptized Catholic. <laughs> so an older generation strong, still strongly identifies with the Democratic Party. Yeah, you see that bumper sticker once in a while, I'm Catholic and I vote. And I think, okay, well, what, what does that mean? Yes. <laughs> in terms of how they, how they vote. That, that article by Spadaro, though, I remember when that first came out, and at that time I was working at the Bishop's Conference, the mm. USCCB, and uh, it really got under my skin. And I thought, okay, um, this is something he, I know Spadaro is, is a Jesuit and a close, very close to, to the Holy Father. And I thought, okay, this will, the Holy Father will distance himself from this. He actually did the opposite. I think there were three times that he celebrated this piece. Yes. And it was very disappointing because there's a complete misunderstanding of the church in the United States. It was more evidence that, that there's a small group, some Jesuits, it seems, who are portraying the United States a particular way to the Holy Father. And, and either he's, um, Kind of naive and accepting it, or he goes along with it. But I remember there, there was a line in that in that article that um, described the alliance as the humanism of hate. Mm. And uh, as somebody, my job as the executive director of government relations at the Bishops' Conference, my, part of my job was to work within these alliances. And uh, certainly, there were fundamentalists who were uh, extreme in terms of politics first, faith second. But that was not my experience at all with respect to the collaboration that was happening between Catholics and evangelicals on a whole host of issues, whether they be pro-life or religious liberty, or even many of the, the um, 
uh, efforts on, on the poor. For example, PEPFAR, which was the very successful and good program, giving billions of U.S. dollars overseas to help in the fight of, of um, HIV-AIDS. And the evangelicals worked very closely with Catholics to get conscious protections in there so that all people could participate mm -hmm. in the program. And I, the alliance was actually quite healthy, not just for Catholic Church and evangelicals, but I think for those who were trying to serve. Because it's oftentimes the Catholics who are going out to the margins. I had distinct uh, privilege of traveling with Catholic Relief Services a couple of times. And they were the ones who were going out to the very rural areas. Mm -hmm. uh, lots, you know, less of a population there. So, so the, the government programs were in the city because the higher density and you could do more in terms of number of people. But that alliance allowed for conscience protections that enabled then evangelicals and Catholics to participate in these government programs that served the very ones that were you know, um, trying to help in ways that the government couldn't have done otherwise. So I, rather than an, an ecumenism of hate, I, I, I saw it more as an ecumenism of love in certain respects. It could be also that uh, American politics is, is uh, a contact sport, mm. <laughs> certainly. And uh, in our polarized time, both parties are engaged in some pretty, can often use pretty harsh rhetoric, you know, semi-fascist, uh, mm. Uh, Biden said it's kind of an unimaginable that um, a president would say that. But, but you know, Donald Trump says all kinds of uh, blunt things as well. So, so uh, but why would the Vatican presume that our political involvement involves endorsement of these more extreme? I guess there are, as we said, you know, plenty of social media personalities that that play along with that game, but that's that's really not representative of the of the wider church. Have we, what about you? I have not heard politics from the pulpit. I mean, I I just don't hear it. No. I mean, I go no. to here in New York. I go to a Dominican parish, and I think it would count as traditionalist within the the range of uh, of. Of Vatican II Catholicism, and never, ever, ever there have I heard a sermon on 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 a about, that had any that told us how to vote or even mentioned a politician by name. I haven't heard that either. And my sense is that as things become even more polarized politically, that what you'll hear from the pulpit is even less political because they don't want to be identified with this charged language from the left or the right. And and so my experience is the same as yours is that. They're not certainly talk, not talking about anything in terms of specific candidates. They may talk to, about some issues from time to time, but but that's always been the case and should be the case. But I don't see the church weighing in specifically on on, on campaigns the way that sometimes it's portrayed. We have this document from the bishops, um, Faithful Citizenship, mm -hmm. comes out every four years. Um, I, I was one of the staffers who helped, helped staff the last kind of major overhaul of it. And you know, it's a document that I've expressed before that I'm very frustrated with because it tries to do everything. Mm -hmm. And you read the thing and you walk away from it, and and frankly, you're not sure what to do. <laughs> it's true. It's true. Uh, so I don't think the church is putting its thumb on the scales uh, in, in in any in any real significant political way. I do think it's it's prudent for pastors to keep the hurly burly of the political fist, you know food fighting at arm's length. So I, I do. Oh, yeah. I think that's prudent and, and it's inappropriate. Yeah. And, you know, uh, I want to be formed uh, theologically and morally 
as you pointed out, by um, when I go to church. But it's a long way for a moral principle to uh, the, the kind of determinations of prudence about whom to vote for or what policies are wise and, and what policies are unwise. And, and this is where, going back to where we kind of start the conversation, where I, I think there can be um, small but loud voice. And, and I think the example here on the right, from the clerical perspective, is Father Pavone, or now the former Father Pavone. Mm. I mean, my observation of him, and this may, uh, some of your listeners may disagree with this, but I think he just crossed the line a number of times in terms of his explicit, aggressive support for, for Trump uh, and mm-hmm. others who simply because it was a pro-life issue. Now, the pro-life issue is the preeminent issue, and I'll defend that always. Uh, but he crossed the line by becoming very directly supportive of a candidate with similar kind of aggressive language. I, I, I think uh, as it, one can never vote for a candidate because of that candidate's uh, permissive stance on abortion. And that would be, uh, that would be kind of a, a, a grave... Sin to to because that would be that would be you, you as a Catholic endorsing mm-hmm. uh, the abortion um, regime, uh, but you know nobody you know political judgment involves all things considered and one can vote for someone in spite of their stance on moral issues. In spite of their position on on, on life or just one life or or marriage or mm-hmm. I mean things are getting. Getting pretty, um, uh, you know, transgender issues and so on. Um, I mean, I tend to think, but I, I would, I would certainly vote for a pro-life Democrat on the principle that the more bipartisan it is, the better. A- absolutely. Unfortunately, you don't have many options. No, we it's, don't. There isn't a single yes legitimately pro-life uh, member of, of yes. Democrat in, in Congress. Unfortunately, we used to have some great examples of that. Yes. And very recently, but but they, they, they in the primaries they pushed them out. Let's pivot to what we what you're seeing about uh, the future or the present of the American Church. You had a you your organization works for renewal. Uh, you you were in the kind of catbird seat in Washington, working for um, working for the bishops. Uh, what do you see as the overall profile of the American Church? Um, strengths and weaknesses. I think there are a lot of strengths. Be honest with you, I had the great privilege. There was roughly 270 bishops in the United States, and I worked with many of them mm-hmm. in my position as government relations. Uh, not not the majority of them directly, but but many of them directly and, and otherwise uh, indirectly, many of them. And I am just encouraged by the sort of men that these bishops are. Um, they they get portrayed as um, being lawyered up, and and sometimes that happens because mm-hmm. of because of bankruptcy issues and whatnot. But the ones that I know personally that I've worked closely with, they are men of faith, trying to do an almost an impossible job. Uh, now, would I do things differently than them sometimes? Well, you know, each situation is, is different, but but on kind of a fundamental level, they're, they're, they're men of faith, which is a good place to start mm-hmm. as a bishop. Indeed. <laughs> uh, and, I, and I, you know, frankly, there are probably, there's some bishops I'm not, I'm not, I might not be able to say that for, but the vast majority of the ones that they're faithful men, they're doing the best they can with the skills they have, and, and the reality is they weren't trained to be administrators of multi-million dollar corporations. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then we have, I think, the fruit of John Paul II and Benedict XVI, very much real in this country, 
we've got lay apostolates, and we can go through a whole list of them, and first things would be part of that, being on the intellectual side, but also on the apostolic side and other areas. All sorts of examples of the laity taking leadership of the church in the United States. Well, I think, for instance, the Catholic classical school movement, which is, uh, these are grassroots lay initiatives uh, that they pop, they're popping up all over the place. That's a very good sign. It's a very good sign. And, and it's not necessarily led by the leadership of the, 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 the clerical leadership of the church. Well, sometimes they Again, are opposed because yeah. it's comp competition with the parochial system. Right, <laughs> right. Uh, but, but, but I think more and more bishops are realizing that we, we need more space um, for, for these initiatives. And then I think another example on the clerical side, the seminaries have been reformed. Not completely, but they're not place of dissent that they used to be. Right. I think I agree with you. That's what that was a the bishops that really did that in the nineties. They absolutely they, and they, they took leadership on that. Um and and, and it worked. Mm -hmm. Um I obviously more can still be done. Now I, I think the universities have largely been untouched. Pretty and, difficult. Very difficult. Are, they don't you don't have any direct control on the way you have a control of the seminary faculty. Mm -hmm. so, uh, and and some of the uh, charitable Institutions of the church. I, I think I've, I've mentioned it in, in someplace else where I, I've written that on the Affordable Care Act, it was very frustrating because I was literally having to chase the the leadership of the hospital, Catholic hospital systems around Capitol Hill, in diametrically opposed positions in terms of of the outcome of that bill, <laughs> and uh, um, it, it was it was very frustrating. Yeah, yeah. But 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 so so I think that for me at least, I see a lot of, a lot of hope. This church may be a little bit smaller and getting smaller, but I think there's there's a um, an energy there, a life um, that that it, that is new. So I'd say on the positive side, on on, on the critical side, the negative side, um, it's kind of a PTSD from the clerical abuse oh, crisis. Yeah. So the leadership, I think, is is very gun shy and very worried not to make a misstep. And that risk aversion means that there's lots of oppor lost opportunities. That's right. I think you, you've characterized it extremely well. I think one of my biggest frustrations working with the bishops is they start with a point of, let's not make a mistake here. Mm -hmm. And yeah, you don't want to make a mistake, but then it does take away opportunities. Um, how do they get out of that mindset? I don't know. I mean, it starts in the seminary. I mean, in the seminary, while there's been some reform, there's still a mentality you need to kind of conform. Mm-hmm. And and to allow a creative energy, um, I, I think I think would serve the church well. Um, we, we we see with with the schools as you identified, we have outside of the school system um, some really creative things happening. But I'd like to see some more of that happening actually within Catholic schools. Right, it's happening in some pockets I've seen here and there, but probably not as much as as would serve the faithful well. Um, but then we see religious communities, the ones that are orthodox, are dynamic and growing. Uh, the ones that aren't are dying. We've seen that for, for, for years now, but that's, that's where the future of the church is. It's where the life is. The, let's then, the future, thinking about the trend lines. I agree with you. The trend lines are, are actually quite promising. I often visit my brother in Evanston, um, Illinois, just north of Chicago, and he lives close to a, a parish on the south end of Evanston, that I, the first time I went to Mass there, I was like, whoa, uh, they don't even really, they have this kind of modified Nicene Creed. The Eucharistic prayers were very made up. I mean, it was it was like way... Catholic? 
Yes, way out there, progressive uh, um, church. And then I, when I was asking some Chicago presidents, they laughed and said, oh, it's a sort of notoriously famous, notorious mm-hmm. progressive parish. Well, gosh, you know, uh, years go by, I go, and then I was there, I don't know, it was before the pandemic, maybe 2018, 2019, new pastor. Uh, um, the, they said the Nicene, the actual Nicene Creed. Progress. <laughs> uh, the the Eucharistic prayers were were correct. Uh, so it was a valid mass. It was a valid mass, and it still had all the accoutrements of you know the kinds of programs that the um, the parish was uh, promoting. Um, you know there was the rainbow stuff was prominent, um, but I thought, wow, you know there is a movement back to the tradition mm-hmm. in the, in its own way. Mm-hmm. And if that's happening there, then to me, that means that that's the basic trend line in the church, um, which is to a kind of halting, in some places, some instances more rapid uh, embrace of, of the tradition in all of its richness. And, and in this respect, maybe the Holy Father's right. The church here is backwards looking, but backwards looking in a beautiful way right. that embraces the tradition and the beauty of our faith. I mean, looking back, that's where we get our faith from. And so I, this characterization that looking back is somehow a bad thing is very frustrating. I, I'm the father of three small children, and um, you know, it, it, it's, it becomes almost personal for me sometimes. I'm like, I go to confession, the first thing is just the frustration of my anger coming out because of, yes. my gosh, they're trying to take from my children the beauty of our faith. Mm. And I get angry about that. Um, now, I'm not a CLM person. I'm not, the parish that I go to is quite kind of a normal, noble yes. order mass, and I would like things a little bit more dignified at times. But it's, I feel like that's who we are as American Catholics, and I feel like that we're being criticized for even that. Yes. And, and that, that's, that's a, a, sort of a, a soft attack on my children, and I take it very personally. Yeah. As I've said in... To some friends that uh, there are obviously excesses in traditionalism, uh, just as there are excesses in progressivism. But if I have to choose which uh, I have to want to moderate and correct, I'll go for excesses on the traditional yeah. side, <laughs> because our culture as a whole uh, gives us plenty, plenty. Of, uh, of kind of excessive progressivism. Uh, to try to to try to deal with so uh, any any uh, what about the conference itself uh, does it have a future I mean obviously it's an institution but yeah. uh, is is it is it uh, does it have a uh, an important role to play or is it going to be more just initiative grassroots and then individual bishops or I think it's more the latter but but that's to say that that's not to say that there isn't a role for the conference to, to play I, I do think. Most of the, the, the life will come out of things non-institutional in terms of the big church, um, the school movements and, and mm-hmm. vocations at the parish level and that sort of thing. That being said, um, you know, I often hear critics um, from, the, from the conservative side, which I tend to generally identify with, being very critical of the, of the, bish- the, the bishops. Here, <laughs> the bishops. Yes. And uh, the, the bishops' conference, I think, can be a big institution that's inefficient, uh, and you wonder kind of what do they do, but but they play a couple, couple really important roles that I see. So I'd, it'd be a shame for it to be taken away altogether. That being said, 
and I'll explain what those are in a, in a second here. But that being said, I think one of the, the real um, dangers, one of the abuses that came out of Vatican II was empowering bishops' conferences with so much authority that it's, I mean, we're now kind of um, playing around with the idea of giving them authority over doctrine. Mm. That hasn't happened yet, but that would be a, that would be um, a rejection of the Catholic uh, understanding of, of the bishops' uh, authority on a national level. But, but the conference allows bishops to relate to each other in a fraternal way, which is really important. Mm -hmm. They're very isolated. And, and it's surprising, but they oftentimes don't have a close circle around them because just the dynamic of being the number one guy and then everybody's kind of serving, um, serving him in a, in a sort of a business sense. But the, but the conference, the USCCB, allows bishops to relate to each other as brothers. So that's one, really important. But two... Many dioceses simply don't have the resources to, for example, kind of analyze what's going on at the federal level or even the state level mm. relative to uh, policy, religious liberty, or whatever it might be. And so the bishops' conference can provide those resources. Uh, and then there's also pastoral work that, that can be um, uh, aided by the work of, an, of the national body. That being said, there are inefficiencies, no doubt. And there are abuses that come out of it. But on balance, I, I would be an advocate for it, uh, even though I recognize that there are some weaknesses to it. Well, let's hope that those weaknesses are minimal and the strengths uh, uh, grow. Uh, I, I, am, I am very, uh, not hopeful, but actually optimistic about where the church is going to be at the end of this decade. Mm. One of the things I think that is forcing the church deal with in terms of there's as you know your listeners know there's confusion coming out of Rome but that's an opportunity you know bishops can can now kind of take a stand here and say who is what, what are we as a diocese and if you want to be synodal what are the people of my of, of my diocese within the parishes within the diocese you know what do they need for their spiritual health and that's an opportunity that I think maybe didn't exist when it was just kind of okay every Rome's taking care of everything yes and, uh, and that was certainly my mentality prior to this pontificate. I, mean, I had an ultramontanism that was unhealthy. So Rome's, Rome's in charge, all is good. Right. Whereas the church, qua church, is largely in the parish. And, and for me at least, I don't know, you know, lots of folks don't have to pay attention to it at the level that I have to, and God bless them. Um, <laughs> but for me, it's, it's, it's kind of pushed me to be more engaged at the local level at my, in my parish. I'm much more involved in my parish now than I than I was five years ago. And I think it's a part in response to, hey, the faith belongs in the family and in the parish, and I can't just look to Rome anymore. I agree. I agree. Well, thanks, Jade, for your time and, uh, um, and for your work on behalf of God's kingdom. Thank you. Likewise, really appreciate your work.